Good evening. Thank you guys for having me. I have the privilege of being here about once a year, as Caleb said. Uh, I, was got, I got to be here last August. That was a blessed occasion for a number of us for a number of reasons. So I'm excited to be back. Caleb has said some very kind things, some of which are hopefully somewhat true. I never know. This is the time when I'm supposed to return the compliment and you all probably roll your eyes and just assume this is something pastors do to kind of blow smoke and to make one another feel good about ourselves. Uh, I hope that's not what we're doing. I do not do that. Uh, I don't do that in most of the places that I preach, uh, but I do with men like Caleb, uh, Pastor Harry Fujiwara, uh, Pastor Peter Nicotra, uh, Pastor Ed Moore. Uh, those are kind of my guys. Uh, those, are, those are godly Men, men who love God's word, men who preach well and pastor well, men deserving of honor, men that I look up to and want to be like. So being aware of the danger of pride, we all struggle with that. It is good to praise and encourage. It is good to seek to outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, And Caleb and I have a number of strange similarities, all kinds of weird little things, uh, same wedding anniversary, large families, and and all of this. Uh, One of which is hating being the center of attention. You think that since we are comfortable up here that we like it, we do not. This is something different than that. We hate being put on the spot. We hate attention. But another thing that we have in common is that we are both disciples of Ed Moore, who loves putting people on the spot and making people uncomfortable. So, sorry, Caleb Bunch, this was not my idea. Your wonderful wife in the back there put me up to it. Uh, But Gateway Church, today, August the 3rd, 2022, is your pastor's 36th birthday. So I thought we have to at least, yeah. I won't pull you up here. We won't sing. We won't do anything crazy like I would like to do and put you on the spot. But I wanted to say, brother, we love you. Uh, Happy birthday. Uh, We're thankful for you. God has been very good to you. I hope you know that. God has been very good to many people through you. Um, So you are blessed, and you have been a blessing to many. A gateway, good and faithful pastors are rarer than you think that they are. Um, And you guys have one here, so be blessed and be encouraged. Caleb, we love you. Blame your wife. I apologize, um, but I told her I would do it. Uh, let's, let's get to work. That, by the way, does not count as part of my time, so that whole little thing there doesn't count. If the sermon feels long, it is Ashley Bunch's fault. Um, time, time for what is far more important than Caleb's birthday. Please take out your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 11. We are going to look this evening at verses 17 through 27. John 11, verses 17 through 27. Every writer wants that perfect opening line for their book. I am a reader. All I do outside of church and my family is read and run. I love to read, and I love to get out and escape and run. Uh, Sometimes I like to quiz my people on famous opening lines of books at the beginnings of sermons. It's hard to listen to sermons. I get it. It's easier to preach than listen, I think. I was on vacation I listened to some bad sermons. I was like, man, how do you people do this? So thank you for listening. I want to help you try and listen and and pay attention. So wake up. Uh, This was running through my head while I was working on this text. This one is easy. You need to know this. What book begins with this line? Marley was dead to begin with. Anybody? What is it? Christmas Carol. Good. You got to know that one. If you have not yet read Charles Dickens, repent and read Charles Dickens. Start with A Christmas Carol. It's only about 100 pages. Watch the Muppets version. Uh, The movie is wonderful. Marley was dead to begin with. Lazarus 
was dead to begin with. That's where we are picking up the story in John chapter 11. Death is our context. Death is our conflict. Death is so present and real and overpowering in this story, maybe in your story, that it's almost as if death is a character itself. It could be the character, the main player, plot and purpose, unless, well, unless there is life, of course. But Lazarus was dead to begin with, and so I want to talk to you this evening about death. I get to talk with you once a year. I'm not going to come and waste my time with trivial things. Let's talk about things of significance. Let's talk about death this evening. This is a chapter that is all about death. But the good news is that being a chapter uh, that is um, ultimately about Christ, as are all the chapters of Scripture, as you know by now, this chapter that is about death is ultimately also then about life. But the way to the life is through the death. That's how it was for Christ. That's how it will be for all who follow him. That's how it's going to be for us as we work through this text. We must deal with death. Though we don't want to, do we? We try and ignore it. We try not to talk about it ultimately because we just don't really know what to do with it. It makes us uncomfortable. It's awkward. We don't know how to respond. Do you think about death? And how do you think about death if you do? I would wager that most of us probably think about death today differently than Christians often did in the past. As a good Reformed Baptist, I love Charles Spurgeon. He's our guy. Here's just a couple Spurgeon quotes 150 years ago related to death. Check these out. These are weird. To be prepared to die is to be prepared to live. That one makes a little bit of sense. That's what we're trying to do here this evening. Catch this one. The best moment of a Christian's life is his last one because it is the one that is nearest heaven. All right, do we agree with that? Do we treat death like that's true? Here we go. The only people for whom I have felt any envy have been people on vacation, people retired, dying members of this very church. Only people, Spurgeon says, he has envied, have been dying members of this very church. (laughs) That's a little bit different. It is not a loss to die. It is lasting, perpetual gain. That sounds a bit like Paul, doesn't it? Philippians 1.21, to die is gain. Verse 23, his desire is to depart. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we would rather be away from the body. Again, that's scripture, that's Paul. But would we? <laughs> Revelation 14.13 says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. So we've got desired death according to Paul. We've got blessed death according to John. Again, it's just a little bit strange. We are talking about death here. The king of terrors, as Job calls it. The great unknown, inevitably coming for us all, ending all, hanging over all. I read a weird book recently called The Violet Hour. It's about the deaths of various famous writers. None of them were Christians. I don't know why I read that book. It was weird. Uh, the author was wondering why she even wrote about the book, right, this topic. And she said, well, secretly, of course, working through these deaths, what one wants to learn is how to avoid dying altogether. An endeavor that proves hopeless as all her subjects die. And so she eventually writes at the end, I don't believe that you can learn how to die or gain wisdom or prepare. I gave her 300 pages, and that's what she gave me at the end. Uh, not very encouraging. But 
I believe this evening that you can learn how to die, that you can gain wisdom, and that you must prepare. I even believe that you can avoid dying altogether. Because that's exactly what Christ himself tells us in our text this evening. I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. That's what must be done about death. That's what has been done about death. That's the only way what Spurgeon says about death can make any sense. This should be obvious, but the only solution to death is obviously life. We're obsessed with health and safety and lengthening life, but ultimately, all we're really doing is delaying death. Only life can solve the problem of death. Do you feel the problem? You're alive. You desperately want to stay alive. That desire will inevitably be frustrated. What can be done? How can life be found when death comes for us all? John chapter 11. Jesus is how. And this is beautifully simple. Jesus has just said in chapter 10 verse 11 that he has come that we may have abundant life. Doesn't that sound really, really good? I want that. I'm tired of being grumpy. I'm tired of being moody, impatient, restless, conflicted, offended, frustrated, disappointed. I want a solution to my death that's coming then. And I want to experience the fruits of that solution, abundant eternal life now. How can that happen? Well, let's consider our text, and let's consider Christ our life. You guys have been working through a series on the teachings of Christ. Big idea tonight, ultimately, the teaching of Christ is Christ. That's what he's going to do tonight. He's going to teach about himself. Ultimately, the Christ to his life, then, is teaching us about life. And so we've got a simple outline as we progress through this life and death story. Jesus is our main idea. He's where we must focus. So we have number five of seven I am statements, and we're going to start with that. Point number one, quite simply, I am. If you're a note taker, your first point is simply I am. We're going to start with the identity of Christ. What is the only right response to I am? Point number two, Martha says, I believe And what is going to be the result of this right response in Christ? Point number three, I live. Christ is the only solution to your life and death problem. You only get him through faith, but when you get him, you live. So Christ, faith, life. That's what we're going to do this evening. John 11, we're picking up in the middle. Lazarus was sick. Jesus waited. Lazarus died. Now Jesus comes. Let me read verses 17 through 27. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. If you would, let's bow. Let's begin by going to the Lord in prayer and asking for his help. Let's, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the God of life. You are the God who speaks and life happens, uh, physically and spiritually. Father, we ask that tonight would be all about life. As we consider this text um, in the context of death, as we consider our own context of death, uh, in the midst of life, we are in death. Death is coming for every one of us. Father, may we feel the weight of that. Father, may we more importantly see Christ as the only solution. May we see him for who he is. Um, By your spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty, the glory, the goodness of Jesus Christ, the life abundant that is to be found in him. Father, I can't do any of these things. I cannot touch and affect and change people's hearts. But Father, you can. And you work through your word. You work through the foolishness and the folly of what is preached. You work through the weakness of your servants. Father, work through your word tonight and show us Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Point number one, I am. And so we're starting with the identity of Christ, which is where we should always start. Christ makes big claims about himself. Let's first consider the context of those claims. If you look at verse 17, we have had a scene change. The characters stay the same, except that one of them has now died. Um, That's the point of verse 17. If you see in verse 17, Jesus has been away He purposely stayed away when he found out that Lazarus was sick. Jesus stays. Lazarus dies. He comes. But this verse at the beginning is highlighting for us that Lazarus has already been dead for days. Again, why that detail? Well, there's all these ideas. There's like maybe there was a Jewish superstition at the time that the spirit like hovered over the body for three days and Jesus had to wait four days so the spirit was gone and it looked more impressive. Or there's all this. I don't think any of that's uh, the case. In verse 39, Martha will argue that since it's been four days, there will be an odor. I love the King James of verse 39. It says, Lord, by now he stinketh, right? He, he stinketh, he does, in the, in the grave. Right, so the body is already beginning to deteriorate and decay. We now know the first line of a Christmas carol, Marley was dead to begin with. The second line is, there is no doubt whatever about that. That's the point of the four days. Lazarus was dead. There's no doubt whatever about that. And whereas the deadness of Marley is being emphasized to prepare us for the meeting of his ghost, still very much dead, in chains, tortured for eternity, the deadness of Lazarus is being emphasized to prepare us for the meeting of his life. In the life, capital L, Jesus Christ. And so Christ comes, the I am arrives. If you look at verse 19, we see that many of the Jews have come to Martha and Mary to comfort and console them. Maybe this was a family of some means and significance that maybe implies. We cannot know for sure. But the mourning process at that time was elaborate and extensive. There were specific Jewish laws. You had to have a certain number of professional mourners and musicians. It was loud. There was weeping and wailing and quite a commotion. Uh, it's, It's a little bit foreign to us today. But the Jews rightly recognized the tragedy that is death, the unnaturalness of death. And if you find yourself with us by the chance here on a Wednesday evening and and you do not know Jesus, you're checking some of this stuff out, this fact is a great argument against the naturalistic worldview that increasingly pervades our culture. Death should be the most natural thing in the world to us. 
All are born, all die. Nature is shot through with death. We've been watching a nature show with our kids, and everything keeps killing everything else, right? They just keep eating things, and the girl's like, oh, it's so cute. This is so sad. All right, just death everywhere. It's natural. And yet, why do we so rage against it? Why does it so unsettle us and unnerve us? It doesn't make any sense unless the Scriptures are true. Unless Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity into our hearts. If we are made in the very image of God, if we are made like God, the God of life, made for life, we all of us then intrinsically and inherently long for life. That makes sense of the natural awareness we all have of the horror and unnaturalness of death. And so we rightly mourn when it comes. It's an unwelcome intruder. It's the unnatural enemy of God's good creation. And these people are mourning, but it is into that mourning that Christ is coming. Verse 20, we see that Martha hears that Christ is coming, and so Martha comes to Christ. Great, simple application point right there. Martha's first move is the right move. I don't know about you, but my tendency in suffering, difficulty, sadness, conflict is to hide, flee, run, turn away. Martha goes to Jesus. Martha meets Jesus. Uh, She knows where to turn. She knows where to look in the face of death. Go to Jesus with your fears and your disappointments and your needs. The Psalms give you great freedom to do so and to do so openly and honestly. Look at her words to Christ in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. We're going to consider her words in a moment. I want to focus on her in point two. Let's get to Christ's words. We're focusing first on Christ. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. Don't just read over that. Don't be over familiar with the story. What a word. What a promise in the face of death. Life is the only solution to death. Lazarus was dead. Jesus says, oh, he will rise again. He will live. Martha's not tracking yet. How could she be tracking yet? Verse 24, she said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. It was a great debate and divide back then between the kind of the two groups of religious authorities. You've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees completely denied that there was any resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed that there was a future resurrection of the dead. Well, so Martha's demonstrating that she sides here with the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a bad rap, understandably, from the Gospels, but they were the more biblical bunch. They were seeking to teach God's law. They were failing, um, but they were closer to the truth on this area. But (laughs) they were closer to the truth. Verse 25, look at what Christ does. Look at what Christ claims. He enters into this age-old argument, and he just blows the whole thing up. And we're going to talk in a moment about how perfectly he comforts Martha. But notice how that comfort includes lovingly correcting Martha. Notice how his comfort includes teaching. Martha, verse, he says in verse 25, they're arguing, resurrection, is it there, is it that? 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And that's our point. It's the main point. Get this one thing. I am. This is one of the high marks of the whole book. That's one of the clearest and most comforting revelations of the person of Christ. Who is this Jesus? That's who he is. John, 
is a masterful writer, and he structures his book around seven different signs. The first half of the book is made up of these seven signs. This is number seven. This is the final climactic sign. Everything has been building to this, the raising of Lazarus, seven signs. But John is also working in the seven I am sayings and structures his book around those as well, seven and seven. And each of these sayings, Jesus claims something about himself, reveals to us a little bit more about who this Jesus is. This is number five of seven. And Jesus just insists on saying things. Like this. If you are bored with Jesus, you don't know Jesus. Jesus will not allow you to like him. He will not allow you to be mildly interested in him. He will not allow you to consider him as wise, teacher, prophet, healer, nice guy to have around, or one among many. No, he here takes one of the most important texts in the Hebrew Scriptures. He takes Exodus 3.14. You probably know the story, the burning bush. He's a self-revelation of the creator God of all that exists where he says to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people, I am has sent me to you. And then uh, Jesus here says, I am that. I am, I am he. I am Yahweh. Oh, by the way, that was me in the burning bush. John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. In the Old Testament, when you are seeing God, you are seeing Christ. You are seeing the Son of God. He is the image of God. He is the one who makes God known. Jesus says, burning bush, that's me. He is claiming to be nothing less than God himself in the flesh. Big, bold claims. And I guess it's either true or not. He either is or he isn't. If he is, you must deal with him, and you should deal with him tonight. If he is not, then he is worse than worthless, and I have wasted my life, and you are wasting your time. Who do you say that Jesus is? He says that he is I am, and he's relentlessly insistent about this in this book. He said it back in 858, before Abraham was, he doesn't say I was, he says before Abraham was, I am. Again, same construction, but this time with no predicate. The predicate comes after and explains. Just I am, period. No other information. I'm God. But there's these seven other claims with the predicate, I am something, something attached to it. Further explanation. Listen to these. I'm going to run through all of them. This will be too fast. I know I'm too fast. This will be too fast. Uh, jot down the references, think about these, look at them. But I want you to note, I'm going to ask you in a second, I want you to note what every single one of these is about. What is the one thing that binds these seven statements of Christ together? Here we go, 635, the first one, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 812, he says, I am the light of the world. 107, he says, I am the door. 1011, he says, I am the good shepherd. 1125, he says, I am the resurrection, and the life. 14.6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 15.1, he says, I am the vine. What are all of those about? What is it? One word, what is it? Jesus, absolutely, but what about Jesus? What binds all those together? What? He's the Messiah, absolutely. Life, who said life? Life. Your pastor got it right, of course. Good. That's a good thing. Life. All of them. Bread is life. Light is life. 
The door is the way to life. The good shepherd lays down his life for our life. Our text, he's the resurrection and the life. Coming up, the way, the truth, the life. The vine is life. Every one of those is about life. Listen, this is the thing that Christ is communicating. This is the thing that Christ has come to bring. I am life. The fundamental claim of our faith is that Christ is God. And since God is life, the fundamental claim of our faith is that Christ is life. This is the very center and sum of Christianity. I am. This is a series on the teaching of Christ. Again, the teaching of Christ is ultimately Christ. The teaching of Christ is ultimately then life. He says, I am all of that. So now the question then is, well, who are you? How do you respond to this claim of Christ? For that is what determines who you are. That is what determines life or death. And so, point number two, we move on. There are only two responses to such a claim. The first is rejection. Jesus has just said back in 1026 to the Jews. And the Jews in, New, in John, the book of John, it's not generally, the, it's not an ethnic designation. It's not the people. It's generally the religious authorities. It's those people who are generally opposed to Jesus. And so Jesus says to them in 1026, you do not believe. That's response number one. And just to be clear, not choosing one way or another, or simple apathy, or disinterest, or willful ignorance is the same as outright rejection. You cannot be confronted with such a claim, with the claim to be the God of life, come to graciously give life and respond to that, and respond to Him, the God of all beauty and glory and grace with, eh, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather watch Netflix. You know, this, this is more interesting to me than that. No, he's, he's making the biggest possible claim. Apathy towards that claim is rejection of that claim. And that is response number one. Response number two is our second point. I believe. Verse 27, Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe. But back up first. She doesn't start there. I don't think she's quite fully there at the beginning of our passage. So let's look back at verse 21 again. Some people read Martha's opening words to Jesus there as a sort of maybe implicit rebuke. Hey, where were you? I don't, again, I don't think so. You can't read tone in the Greek. I think it's likely just the legitimate, honest cry of grief and sadness. Where, where were you? He whom you love died. Where were you? Because I don't think there's anything wrong with her bringing that to the Lord. We should bring that to the Lord. Again, that's where we see in the Psalms. You desperately need the Psalms. But don't miss that there is some degree of unbelief revealed there in her assumptions. First, she says, if you had been here. But why would Jesus have had to have been there? Back at the end of John chapter 4, a man has come to Jesus from out of town and asks him to come and heal his son who is at the point of death. And Jesus says, go ahead, you can go. He'll live. He heals him from far away. Jesus does not have to go to him. Jesus heals while he is away could have done the same thing for Lazarus. Jesus is not constrained by space, so he could have healed him, which also then demonstrates another assumption of Martha's that had Jesus been there, he would have healed Lazarus, but he could have healed him from a distance. He did not, so why assume that he would have if he was there? 
Again, I don't want to be critical of Martha here. That's not my point. My point is simply that there are some things she doesn't quite get yet, but she gets the main thing. She gets that her only hope is Christ. She gets that he loves Lazarus. That's emphasized twice at the beginning of our story. He whom you loved. Uh, Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He knows that. She knows that. And in verse 22, she even seems to imply that she's got some sort of glimmer of hope. I don't know what verse 22 means. I don't know exactly what she's saying. But she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Again, that's a profound statement if you really think about it. I don't think she yet has the entirety of the identity of Christ sorted out yet. But God gives to no one whatever they ask from him. Thank God that he has not given to me all the sinful and foolish things that I have often asked in my life. He doesn't answer the prayer, all the prayers of any of us, except for the Son of God, of course. So she, she's close. There's some sort of faith, literal or imperfect as it may be at that point. But I want to pause for a moment and put a pin in Martha, and I want to step back for a second, because we're talking about faith, I believe. We've got death, life, Faith is the key in the middle of this thing. Look back for a moment. We didn't read this part, but look up at verses 14 and 15. I think this is really interesting. Let's go back to the disciples for a moment. Jesus has told the disciples in verse 11 that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And that's a wonderfully comforting verse. In Christ, death is nothing but sleep. What a a comfort uh, that is. Uh, Death in Christ is nothing more uh, than going down and waking up. And I don't know about you, but I love sleep. I cannot wait to go home. And sleep. Uh, Jesus takes that metaphor and explains death in Christ with that word. I think that's wonderful. But look at verse 14. The the disciples aren't tracking. He has to explain to them. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's wild what Jesus says there. In effect, he's kind of at least saying, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad. Now, there's more to it than that, of course. There's a point. There's purpose. Our our great hope is that there's always purpose in Christ. There's always purpose in all that God does. Look at the verse again. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Purpose statement, so that you may believe. Again, that's our point. I Believe. Jesus is working on the faith of the disciples, just like Martha. Jesus waited for a number of reasons, one of which was for the good of his disciples. The faith of his disciples. And faith is quite simply, it's, it's, it's trust, it's trustful belief, it's knowledge of Christ, assent to the truth of that knowledge of Christ, and then trust in Christ, in the person of Christ. Right? Faith is the, the whole-souled entrusting of ourselves into his hands. Again, that's the whole point of this book. Believe. Trust him. Give yourself to him. John is often called the gospel of belief. And back in verse 4, Jesus has said that this illness is for the glory of God. And we just don't have time for the beauty of all the things that are going on here. But that, the glory of God is the key to understanding this whole story. It's fundamental to the story. It's fundamental to your story. Nothing ultimately makes any sense without an understanding of this. God's purpose is God's glory always. And faith glorifies God. Why? Well, because it trusts Him. It trusts Him even in the face of illness. 
even in the face of death. Faith proclaims to the world that we value God more than life. That we trust God in the face of death. And when we do that, by His grace, it glorifies Him. It manifests and makes known how good and great He must be for His people to so cling to Him and love Him even when things are bad. Faith glorifies God and faith is for our good. And so Jesus here works to grow and expand the faith of His disciples. In John, believing is living. Because believing is the way that we are connected to the God of life. And that means that for us, faith is our highest good. Nothing is more important than your faith. Because it's the means through which we are connected to and in communion with He who is our highest good. Thus, if that's true, whatever He can do to strengthen and increase that thing that is our highest good, it must be good. That's why you need a healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God. That's why you need uh, to to cling to and meditate on the providence of God. If you could just believe that God loves you and He's in control of everything, it would change everything. It's easy to confess those things. It's It's much more difficult to live in light of those things. But what if He is working always? What if always? What if Romans 8, 28 is actually true? It's become like a cliche, and increasingly I read people like, oh, don't, don't counsel with Romans 8, 28. No, don't, don't use that. No, what, what if it's true? What if God is actually working every single tiny little thing? What if he's so big and so powerful and so good that he can take all the tiny little threads and all the things that look like from my finite, foolish perspective as bad and difficult and things that I would have never chosen, what if he's actually so good that he can work all of those things out to bring my ultimate good. We would never complain. We're going to complain about that which God has promised will bring us good. Is he sovereign or is he not? Trust that he is, loves you and that he is that big and that he is working every single thing for your ultimate good, which is you knowing him and increasing your faith and your trust in him. He's growing faith in this passage. Look at verse 16. Is that what uh, Thomas is demonstrating there? Faith? Look at what he says. Let us also go. You could read this, however. You could read this. Listen to it this way. Let us also go, that we may die with him. He's very proud and strong and courageous. Some people think that it is. Look at his big, bold faith. But I don't know. In light of what we know about Thomas in chapter 20, I'm inclined to agree with the commentators who think this may not be faith at all, but more of a sarcastic, resigned, well, let's go die, I guess. Whatever, you know. He's going to go die. Might as well go die with him. Again, I don't know for sure. I can't prove it. Don't, I'm not going to argue with you, which it is. But what if Thomas' statement is not big, grand, bold evidence of faith, but what if it's evidence of lack of faith, or at least very little faith? Well, that would just then be further evidence of how good our good shepherd is. Because, like me, you may not be that much different than Thomas. I'm often not much better. Well, you know, whatever. Everything happens for a reason. I'm grumpy. I'm always grumpy. And I, I, if, if that's Thomas, then how amazing is it that Christ is still working for his good? To grow and strengthen his faith. A faith that will eventually, after the compassionate and patient pursuit of Christ, cry out at the end of the book, my Lord and my God. Oh, you have little faith. Oh, but Christ still loves him. 
Christ still reveals himself to him. Christ still wants to grow our little faith so that we can see him more and more and love him more and enjoy him more. And I think that's what he's doing for the disciples and that's what he's doing for Martha as well. Go, go back to her. Let's look at her again real quick. She's got some things wrong, but again, I want to emphasize, look at how he loves her. Look at how well he loves her at how well he comforts her. Comforts her. 2 Corinthians 1.3 calls God the God of all comfort. I'm often a miserable comfort. My kids fall down. I'm like, just get up. It's fine. Um, I have to like work up compassion and empathy. I'm, I'm a robot and I'm a terrible person. I know I am. God is not. Christ is not. Christ is the perfect comforter. But our concept of comfort is often so constrained. Look at how Christ comforts. Yes, weep with those who weep, of course. He's going to weep with those who weep in a few verses. It may not be exactly what you think is going on there. I think Christ is more angry there than he is sad, but that's another sermon. Um, But he is going to have great compassion on them in their grief. But that's not the entirety of comfort. Christ offers comprehensive comfort. And where does it begin? Notice what he does. What does Christ do? He draws her attention directly to himself. Lazarus is dead. Martha is mourning, and Jesus says, oh, by the way, I am. She's mourning. He's teaching. She's mourning, and he gives her truth, the truth, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Martha says, he, Lazarus, in verse 24, Jesus doesn't say, oh, yeah, I know, no, no, no. Jesus says, me, I am. Don't look there. Look here, because here is where you will find comfort. I know that often much of my struggle as a comforter comes often from not knowing what to say. Someone comes to you with a problem, you're like, oh man, I I have no idea what to say or how to help uh, this person. Not having a real solution to the problem. It's It's a pride thing. But here's the beauty in the comfort that Christ offers. He knows the solution. And he is the solution. And he has the power to solve the problem. So I have to remember That the kindest comfort that I can offer is to direct the sufferer to Christ, the comforter. The best solution that I can offer is Christ as solution. And then all of us have to seek to strive together to believe that comfort is actually and only found in Him. There's this crazy John Owen quote that I love that I've been using a lot uh, lately. He says this. Listen to how he starts this. This is the universal remedy and cure. This is the only comfort for all our diseases. This better be good, Owen. This is really important. Universal remedy. Only comfort for all our diseases. What does he claim that it is? He says, it is a sight of the glory of Christ. And you see, that's what this whole text is about. This is about belief. John is the gospel of belief. Jesus is after her and our ultimate eternal comfort, and he knows that it's found only as we find him. And so even in the midst of mourning and great suffering, he teaches her. He reveals himself to her, and he draws his attention to her. Look at me. Look to me. Come to me. And so you need to know where you tend to look for comfort. Right? How do you self-medicate? Do you know how you do that? Do you know what you tend to go to? Is it just a whole night of Netflix? Is it to go for a run? 
Is it food? Is it sleep? Right? We all have things that we are prone to to look for comfort in. Where do you seek rest and belief? Relief. Where do you really turn when things are bad and you are sad? What you and I most need is a clear view of Christ. We need a constant view of Christ. And that happens by faith through the Word of Christ. This is why we preach expositionally in all of our churches. This is why I preach long sermons. Uh, This is why doctrine and theology really matters. Because those things are about Him. The Word reveals Him. Doctrine and theology reveal Him. And He is big. And He is good. He is the God of all glory and grace, and He is what you need. And that includes knowing Him, which includes knowing about Him, which by the grace of God results in loving Him. I think it is hugely significant here that Christ teaches about Himself to Martha here in the midst of her pain. He teaches her. Me, come to me. Let me tell you about who I am. That's how He comforts. Are you comforted? Ask yourself, why not? Uh, J.C. Ryle, old English pastor, is a guy that I like. He writes on this text, many complain of lack of sensible comfort in their religion. Right? Are we finding the comfort that we are looking for? They don't feel the inward peace which they desire. I think that plagues the evangelical church today. Why is that? Well, let them know that vague and indefinite views of Christ are too often the cause of all their problems. They must try to see more clearly the great object on which their faith rests. They must grasp more firmly his love and power. Do you know that Paul prays that you need power to comprehend how great Christ's love is? Because we can't do it on our own. It's so big and it's so good that we need God's help to understand how big and good that it is. Comfort is found in knowing him intimately and deeply. I want to know him intimately and deeply. Because again, just from these few verses, look at who he is. Look at how good he is. He is life. The first question of the wonderful Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And is that your only comfort? Is Christ where you find comfort? Do you believe this? And look at her response. He's teaching. He's revealing. Look at her response, verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What a confession. What a hint of hesitation. Maybe the greatest confession in the book. What conviction. And in the face of such circumstances, her brother is dead. She believes. And look at the content of what she believes. You're the Christ. Again, she knows. She understands. That's theology. You're the Son of God. There's great content to her belief. She gets it now because Jesus has graciously revealed himself to her. She sees and she knows. She believes. And the result? She lives. Point number three. I am, I believe, I live. And we know that she lives because of the rest of what Jesus claims in verse 25 and 26. Let's close by looking at these verses again. And again, if you get anything, get these verses. Take these verses home and meditate on these verses tonight. I can't say anything better than this. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, who lives and believes in me shall never die. The next verse, Martha believes. And thus we know from those verses that Martha lives. And that's the whole point of this book. John tells us why he writes. 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that my, by believing you may have life in his name. That's exactly what's just happened. Martha is maybe the clearest illustration of the purpose of the book. Believe and live. And that's what I'm so desperate to communicate to you because John is desperate to communicate to you. Every moment of your life, every thought, every word, every deed, it is always oriented toward your seeking life somewhere. Always. You're moving towards something that you have decided and determined is good and that is going to provide you the thing that you are looking for. I desperately want to convince you and convince myself that life, true life, is found only in Christ. Are you seeking life, satisfaction, comfort, peace, whatever, in the only place that it can be found? He says that he is the resurrection and the life. And don't miss the order. Why is it the resurrection, then the life? It seems kind of weird. Well, it's, it's by necessity. By necessity of our sin and death. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You see, we need resurrection because we were dead. So for there to be life, there has to be the transition from the one to the other. Jesus is claiming to be both the commencement and the continuation of life. Resurrection is a return to life. Jesus is the author of that return. And he's the very life to which we are returned. He returns us. And he returns us to himself. He raises us and unites us to himself. And he doesn't say that he teaches the resurrection or leads to the resurrection or gives the resurrection. He says that he is the resurrection. He, a person, is an event, a thing, resurrection. Yet how? I think this is, this is really neat. See, track with me. I need, to, I need to lay this out more clearly, I think. Uh, let's see if I can do it. Chapter 1, verse 4. We, we start off the whole book. In him was life. All right, that's the whole point of this book is life. He is life. He, as the God of life, is life. Again, I used to really struggle with the whole sin and death and hell thing. Like this, you know, what's the big deal? God, like, can you, can't you just, like, ignore it? You just kind of forgive me. That's your job, right? Just sweep it under the rug. What's the big deal? No, wh why is the wages of sin death? Well, it's because sin is our rejection of and thus our disconnection from the God of life. Sin, disconnected from life, equals death. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You said no to the God who is life, and so you died. It just makes sense. And so since life is logically the only solution to death, our only hope was for that life that we disconnected ourselves from, capital life, a person, to come and connect himself to our sin, to take on our sin. And in taking on our sin, taking on our death, and dying that death. If you just want to mess with your brain tonight, one of the most profound statements in the whole of Scripture is Acts 3.15. You killed the author of life. You killed the very author of life. Well, how could they do that? 
Well, it's only because the author of life willed the death. God himself willed the death of Christ, the author of life. Why did he do that? For us. Again, because of his great love for his people, because of grace, because something had to be done about our sin, which is death. And the only thing that could be done is that life himself die in our place. So that that disconnecting debt is gone, it's paid. So that we can then once again be connected to him who is our life and so live. And we live entirely based upon him and in him. Jesus is not saving you from hell. Jesus is just not making it possible for you to go to heaven. Jesus is returning you to himself. He's bringing you back to the one for whom you were created for. We've got to better see that he literally is life. He doesn't just give us life. He is our life. And thus, resurrection is not something reserved for after death. Nor is eternal life. Both can begin now. Both are present in Christ. Both can be laid hold of by faith now. And so in verse 25, he's talking about Lazarus and physical death. Yes, we will still physically die and yet still spiritually live. And then once again, physically live when he returns, as Martha mentions in verse 24. But then in verse 26, Jesus is talking about spiritual death, which results in eternal death after physical death. You've got to understand that there are three deaths. Physical, spiritual, eternal. In verse 26, Jesus is saying that in him, connected to him by faith, we will never spiritually or eternally die. That's the comfort. That's why and how death is transformed for the Christian. That's how Spurgeon can say all those crazy things. Because of the Christ who is life. In him, we are literally in life. He's the vine. We're the branches. We are grafted in and connected to life and so we live. Do you believe this? Do you know what it really means to truly live? Are you alive? John 17, 3, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Living is knowing. We all know that our life is not found. Right? Meaning in life is not found in our possessions, our things, our vacations. We know it's found in relationship, Right? Even non-Christian scientists understand this as they do these studies. Like it's, it's found in our relationships with, with one another. What about vertically? What if, if that's where life is found horizontally? Can you imagine life, relationship with the God who is life? We are resurrected to relationship with he who is life itself. And thus Christ quite literally is our life. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, don't, don't just fly through these verses we're familiar with. I, don't even, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Okay, what are you seeking? You're always seeking something. What are you seeking? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen to verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is your life. That's just what it means to be a Christian. This is the result of a true experience of grace through faith. It is the very life of God, Christ himself, in the soul of man. 
We've got to get beyond. It's just believing stuff about Jesus. We've got to get beyond. Hey, I walked the aisle and I've been baptized and I go to church uh, sometimes. And now, you know, I don't have to worry about hell. No, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yeah, Christianity is Christ. It's that simple. It is the living Christ giving life to the soul by uniting that dead soul to him. This is what we preach. This is what we proclaim. This is where life is found. Christ in us. Is Christ your life? And you know what life does? It grows. It shows. It's, it's beautiful and observable and pleasurable. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. That he counts everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's what I want. That kind of desire for and delight in Christ. That's what I want for my kids. I, I don't care if they go to college. I, I, there's all these things now. I, just, I don't care. I don't care. I want to educate my kids. I'm not, don't call ACS or something. Again, I'm taking care of my kids. I want them to know Jesus. They're going to stand before the Lord one day. Am I going to parent them with all that I have with that in mind? Is my goal their American dream or their well-being in this life? Or is my goal life in Christ for my kids? And am I going to do everything that I can to place them in the way of God's grace? That's what I want for me, for them. And that's what I want for my church and for your church. And I know that's what your pastors want for your church as well. To truly experience and enjoy the abundant life that is found in Christ. I want to less and less look for my satisfaction in life and the things of the world. And be more and more convinced that it is truly and only and fully found in Him. And again, it starts with seeing Him. It starts with looking, learning, and then praying that the Spirit would give us the eyes of faith to see the glory of Christ and live. And for that life to begin now, as He lives in us and through us. Do you believe this? And that's the eternally important question I want to leave you with tonight. The teaching of Christ ultimately is Christ. And the teaching of Christ is life. Could there be a greater claim on your life Christ's claim here to be that life that he lived, died, and rose again in your place for the forgiveness of your sins. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the only solution to your imminent impending death problem, and there is infinite and eternal comfort to be found in him. Believe and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Father, I thank you that your word is living and active because it is the means through which you reveal to us this Christ to his life. Father, my words are ended. My words have been many. Father, your word is our only hope. And so we ask and pray now that you would, by your spirit, do your work through your word. Father, show us uh, those areas that we each have where we tend to look for life and seek life. Father, lead us to repentance. Show us even more clearly how much superior Christ is to all other things and help us to find our life and our joy and our peace in him. Father, I pray that for Gateway. I pray that this would be a church who delights much in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that they would be a place uh, that preaches that gospel and proclaims that Christ uh, to a needy and dying world. And Father, bless this church. Bless these people. Father, help us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.